Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Glasgow Motor Archive podcast. I'm John Hassel and as usual I'm joined by Stuart. How are you Stuart? I'm fine John. Good stuff and we do have a third. We have a special guest with us today. Yes we do. It is Chris Marshall from roads.org.uk. How are you Chris? I'm fine thanks. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you. It is. It's, uh, we, we've not announced uh, that we were going to have you on so this is a bit of a surprise. And you can give us hopefully quite a good perspective of Glasgow from the other side of the border. That's yeah. what we were thinking. Oh, most definitely. It'd be nice to have some external perspective on on all these weird and wonderful things we have up here, uh, <laughs> which, for, which for people from across the UK, they do find them a bit surprising at times. So Absolutely. Yeah, that's most it. definitely. Mm-hmm. So I've said uh, you you also have a website uh, as well, Chris. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Because you you're kind of similar to us. You've you're 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 into roads and transport and general and stuff. But you you've run a site for a long time. So tell us a bit about that and how you got into it. God, yes, a very long time. Um, I realised when you when you sent me the invitation for this and mentioned that you wanted to ask about the website, which of course you did. Um, I realised that. It's now 2021, which means that this August I will have been running it for 20 years, uh, which is um, borderline frightening from my perspective. I, I sort of I, st- I started it in uh, in 2001 as a teenager, literally in a you know in a bedroom in my parents' house at a, you know one of those beige computers that we all had in 2001, um, because I was a teenager who had an interest in the road network and wanted to you know see if there was anybody else out there who did. There was nothing about it on the internet back then, really, uh, very little. Um, So I thought, well, I'll put some pages up and see what happens. And what happened was, it turned out lots of other people were interested as well, but they they just didn't have a website to to look at yet. So it became very popular very quickly. So that's 20 years I've been running um, roads.org.uk, as it's called now. I still get asked by people um, uh, why it doesn't have its old name, which was CBRD. Uh, the answer to that is because it's the worst name for a website that anyone's ever come up with. So I had to change it sooner or later. Uh, so, <laughs> so roads.org.uk is its current what, name. What did CBRD? Oh God. What did CBRD uh, stand for, Chris? <laughs> uh, it stood for Chris's <laughs> British Road Directory, uh, which is the sort of name that you give something when you put about five seconds thought into the name of a website on the basis that you don't think anyone's ever going to look at it. Uh, and it immediately <laughs> sort of gained a bit of a following. Always and I was CBRD to us. <laughs> yeah. I think it will always be CBRD to a lot of people in sort of the, the roads community on the internet and it sort of it hangs around my neck a bit that I've changed it because no one will let me yeah. forget it but uh, I had to do it I must admit it's been it has been on the go Chris it's existed as a, as a thing and as far as I'm concerned for basically as long as I've been researching the history of roads and I, I probably started maybe about 2004 time and that was before I was involved professionally mm. in, in the sector uh, so yeah you You've always been there. I probably learned some of my initial stuff on Glasgow from the article that, that you wrote a few years ago on the Glasgow system. Uh, so, yeah, you have always been there and, and certainly fed into to us when we started creating our own website and developing it. So you, you had a bit of an influence on us as well, certainly. Well, that's amazing to hear because your your website about the you know Glasgow motorways and the, the unbuilt plans and all the rest of it is phenomenal. Um, and it has, uh, I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of uh, sort of Rhodes website loving for a second. We'll move on in just a moment. But it has sort of a level of detail and focus that I can only dream of because I have this sort of ridiculous scattergun approach. I, 
I like to describe my website as uh, the biggest and most frequently updated fan site on the UK road network. There's no basis for me saying the biggest, by the way. I've no idea if it is or it isn't. Not a clue. It just sounds good. But that's that's sort of a really nice way of saying it's about everything and nothing because I don't have a specialism. I just sort of, I cover whatever seems interesting to me and my interest is very broad. So I cover lots of things in sort of slight detail or I occasionally do a deep dive into something. Um, but uh, the joy of your site is that you are completely focused on something and you can cover it all in tremendous detail and really get into it in a way that I, I sort of struggle to do with a lot of stuff that I cover. So that's amazing if, yeah. you know, yeah, it I mean, worked out that way around. Yeah, I mean, we are we are very fortunate geographically, Glasgow and, and the system here. It's very easy to to focus on a, on a small part of a network like that. I mean, yeah. if you there's no way you could do that for the whole of England, for example, uh, in the level of detail we do, unless you had a team of hundreds of people involved. And I even think back to when the, the, the engineering institutions produced a big book, the, the Motorway Achievement, and they had to split it up into multiple sections. Yeah. And, and there was, you know, maybe three or four authors for each of those sections as well, because it's just such it's a huge. broad subject. But you know what, Chris, that's, that's what I always liked about your website. Um, the fact that it, you, I mean, you describe it as scattergun, but it, it was very easy to find information on, you know, all sorts of parts of the network and easy to read yeah as well. and very easy to read and i always loved the graphics that you use as well you know very simple very easy to you know to read for someone who who maybe doesn't have a real knowledge of engineering or traffic engineering anything like that you could you go onto your website and instantly understand what you're reading and that, that's key to the whole thing the accessibility that's really that's really good to hear that is very much what i hoped i was doing um uh so it's yeah if if that is if that is how it works out for you guys that is that's great to hear because that was always the aim um to sort of present things in an understandable way in the hope that you can sort of draw people in or people who have a little bit of an interest can sort of grow their interest a bit and learn about things that's fantastic so that that's probably a good point for me to say after our website loving between the three of us um that you know if you do want to know more about specifically as well the english system um please visit chris's site at roads.org.uk in fact if if you even google any english roads your site generally comes up chris it it does yes um which, which has the yeah. it, it's sort of a mixed blessing because i do quite often get emails from people who think that i am in some way responsible so you'll see any, particularly any anything on my site that has reference to uh, a toll anywhere you know the page on the humber bridge and the page on the m6 toll motorway down near birmingham um uh, they all have a little disclaimer on them somewhere in a red box that says this is not the official website because i just get i just always and i still get emails from people going oh, you've got a crew out filling a pothole on such and such a road and they're they're doing it in the rain and it's not going to stick can you i spoke to mr johnson who was there but he said i need to contact head office can and i have to reply back and go no i'm just a bloke in a bedroom somewhere typing things i, I can't help you i'm so sorry um so, so yeah it's it's nice to be a bit of an authority but um uh, only sometimes <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we would sympathise with that. Um, that's one of the, the reasons that we included archive in our title. Uh, you may remember we, we were just Glasgow's motorways. We were. Um, we got a lot of correspondence <laughs> from members of the public complaining about litter and, and, and road sweeping and the lack of it and various other things. And that was why, because of the amount of material that we had acquired as well, it felt right at that point to say, well, hang on, actually, let's just change the name here. Let's include archive in the title. It shows that we're, we're more of a historic-facing organization than, than anything else and and actually most of the correspondence stopped after that didn't it yeah it was the best thing we done yeah so yeah uh, that, that's fine so should we put our glasgow hats on uh and talk a bit about glasgow okay yes. see, see, 
here we go there so chris i'm going to put this to you uh because stuart did reference that you have actually an article on glasgow and the highway plan and have all this you know fantastic graphics and things on that there you've even got a, a google earth overlay of the greater glasgow transportation study um which is something we don't even have so it, it's very good so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you here so what what's how did you come across this stuff in Glasgow and and, and um, what were your thoughts on seeing it for the first time? I mean, it's all quite ambitious and and stuff and how it compared to England. So what what, what was your general thoughts with it when you came across it? Well, I I didn't I'll be honest I didn't actually know what there was to find when I sort of when I went looking for it. So um, I did the research for that article and I wrote it back in two thousand and five, which which means. Uh, if your website didn't exist, it would be well up on my list of things that need a rewrite because there's not much that is that old on my website that I'm still sort of happy to stand by and say, yeah, that's a that's a nice authoritative piece on the subject. But it sort of it stands up all right, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, back in 2005, I didn't know anything much about the history of Glasgow's motorways. I just knew that there was this sort of magnificent urban motorway network there, unlike anything else in the UK, and there must be some sort of story behind it. So I had a chance to go to Glasgow um, and spent a day in the Mitchell Library, which uh, which is by, I mean, I've done research all over the country for, you know, in all sorts of local studies places and archives and the National Archives and things. The Mitchell is one of the loveliest city libraries in the UK. It's one of those places where you walk in and you think, oh, this is not just a big box full of books. This is a place where they really love the story of this city. And um, I went and spoke to the librarians there and they sort of very proudly brought out and presented me the relevant documents, which were, of course, you know, the highway plan and the Greater Glasgow Transportation Plan. And I sat there with my jaw sort of slowly unwinding itself down to hit the floor as I went through these books of all these sort of plans and networks of unbuilt motorways and artists impressions and things never having expected that I was going to find either anything that comprehensive on a single visit or anything that sort of staggeringly complex and ambitious and sort of complete in its vision for a city so I, I came back and I wrote the article that you can still see there with all these you know I've, I've put some of the artist impressions on there and, and maps and things like that because I, I sort of wanted to come back and, and say to everybody else who was reading the site oh my god look at this um, <laughs> because the plans sort of weren't out there before then so um, yeah I, I was I was gobsmacked I didn't know it was there until I found it and I sort of sat down at this desk and it was presented to me in a single day and it floored me absolutely floored yeah. me and of course that gave you all the material to write you know your fantastic article with that um it, it's it's a massive subject have you have you visited glasgow since then um only once or twice i think it's i have to be really honest glasgow is uh, it's a lovely city and i've really enjoyed the times i've spent there but i haven't spent nearly enough time there and it's been a number of years but one of my favorite things i've done in my time in glasgow and this possibly reflects quite badly on me as a person because there are all sorts of lovely things in that city but you will understand this as well as anyone else one of the things that i've most enjoyed is literally just driving up and down the m8 uh, and some of the other roads because it's just a spectacle um <laughs> as somebody who is interested in roads i could i could literally just drive from bayliston interchange through to the erskine bridge do a u-turn and come back again and have a lovely afternoon out just a great time um and uh on, on the visit uh where i did the research in 2005 i was actually in glasgow with uh, Stephen Jukes, who runs Pathetic Motorways, another website in the sort of the little family of UK road enthusiasm, uh, which you, you, I'm sure you guys know very well indeed. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, Stephen was there on. Steve. 
Lovely. Yes, he he had some business to do. I think he was there with work or something. Uh, and I was sort of tagging along just to kind of parachute myself into the Mitchell Library. But um, outside of work, so in the evening as it was getting dark, we literally just got in the car and drove all over Glasgow around the motorways and had a fantastic time. And I remember one evening it got to about 10 or 11 o'clock at night and we sort of, we, we pulled up having got to the end of, I don't know, the M898 or the M77 or something. And we stopped and it must have been 10, 11 o'clock and we both went... I don't think we've eaten anything tonight, have we? And we'd literally just been driving around and enjoy it, like having a holiday on the motorway system. So, um, <laughs> so no, not not as much time there as I'd like, but I'd like to think I made the most of it. Yeah, yeah. certainly some of the, the old engineers we've known who were involved in the design of the system would be very happy to hear that, that there are people who come to see what they planned and designed and, and, and built. Um, you know. Yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's actually quite a comprehensive network. And that that's kind of moved me on to the next next point of it. I mean, you've spent actually a bit of time then, Chris, and looking at it and you really enjoyed it. Um, so what what is kind of your general opinions and observations of that system and how it works? I'm talking about, of course, the Glasgow motorway system, how it looks, how it maybe compares to other places. Big question, but far away. It it is big. I'm. I don't really want to answer it with a cliche, but I I might go for it anyway. Which is it? It's just. It's like nothing else. It is its own thing. Um, so you you travel around the UK. There are motorway systems in most of the big cities of some kind, um, but nowhere has a road network like Glasgow um, for several reasons. One of which is. Um, I, you know it, it was designed on a completely different basis it was it was designed effectively or certainly as a starting point by importing um the the sort of the design manuals and the design ideas of american urban freeways so you start with that point and you're immediately building a road that doesn't quite look like anything else that you build in the uk so even out yeah. in the suburbs where you've got a bit more space you're building sort of interchange layouts that aren't quite what you expect everywhere else everywhere else in the uk you build an urban motorway and you know you put a sort of a tabletop roundabout over the top of it and that's how you connect to the local road network because that's how we build our motorway junctions and glasgow doesn't do that because it wasn't designed out of the same book um, and then you have the fact that um, the whole of the, the UK road network sort of suffers from slightly the same problem, which was that uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was this huge optimism that you were going to spend a, a huge amount of money building roads everywhere. Um, and then sort of the money and the enthusiasm dried up in the 1970s. So the, the bare bones of the, the road network that we have is very often um, the bits that got built up until sort of the mid 1970s and then you make do with that and you sort of you you know you you work around it a bit and what yeah. the rest of the uk tends to have is okay we'll start with the easy bits here's my first bit of roads money in the 60s i'm going to build a road all the way around the outside and you get a ring road and glasgow of course is just completely different because glasgow went no no, no we're going to start in the middle and we're, we're going to build motorways in the middle first and so glasgow has what no other city has which yeah. is a motorway going right through the middle of it um nobody else did that nobody else <laughs> yeah. started in that order um and so you you have you have the same sort of um you have the same um outcome in one way which is that it is a city with an incomplete road network as its original designers would see it um you know a big plan was drawn up and not all of it was built and you now sort of make do with the bits that you've got but um, the, the sort of the the incompleteness of Glasgow is of a completely different flavor to everywhere else so it's it's fascinating that, that's a very good point, Chris, and it, it's something that is unique about Glasgow is that all the parts of the system that were considered to be strategic um, in nature 
i.e. a motorway from one end of the country to the other, and motorways that connected further afield, be it the M74 or the M77, they were all funded and committed to early on. Uh, and and they, you know, they mostly happened in, in, in their entirety. The plan was in phases, wasn't yeah, it? So. that's right. So it was all phased in such a way that the, the most important bits happened first, even where they were, as you say, more difficult. And, and that's something that makes Glasgow stand out. Okay, some of the roads were a bit slow to be finished, like the M80 and, and the M77, but we got there in the end. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly the regional roads and the, the sort of local roads within the plan that didn't happen, mm -hmm. um, you know, because as, as Chris says, the enthusiasm dried up very quickly, as did the, the money. Uh, you know, so it, it's just one of those things that Glasgow does stand out. And of course, there was the, the social issues that Glasgow had, the, the clearance, the scale of clearance that was happening. We've spent a lot of time recently, Chris, talking about um, how comprehensive redevelopment within the city played a big role within the building of the roads. As these areas were just getting cleared anyway, you know, and the, they, they, it was that first and then the road would fit in with that, yeah. you know. so Much easier than, say, in London, for example, where the property was probably of particularly high quality. So yeah. to acquire that property and clear it and put a road in was going to be much more difficult mm -hmm. than it was going to be in a place like Glasgow. And I think Belfast, to an extent, followed the Glasgow sort of model as well. They yeah. had a lot of clearance and were able to fit aspects of their urban system within that as well. So yeah. that maybe provided an opportunity that other cities didn't have yeah. to the same extent. You, you mentioned London, and I'm hoping we'll have some time later, Chris, to talk about ringways, which is a big project that you've been researching for London's um, unbuilt urban motorway plans. But we will we'll come to that later because mm -hmm. I'm sure you'll be educating us there. Um, just to sort of see individual routes. If, if it wasn't the M8, have you got any particular other individual uh, roads or motorways in Glasgow that you you have a, a keen interest in or you would say your favourites? I have uh, I have a soft spot for the M80 um, for two reasons. One of which is I I really I really like I I say I like I don't like it sort of irritates me slightly, but I'm fascinated by the fact that it was it was built in such different parts in different eras, and you can see the sort of the the three sections of it. You can see the age of it. It's like looking at the rings on a tree. You know the sort of the bit the bit further out up towards sort of Stirling is very much a 1960s motorway, and it sort of has all the the you know the bold sort of batter it through anywhere sort of enthusiasm. You know three lanes of it go thundering right up to the the railway viaduct where they sort of they they lost interest a little bit at Castle Carey, uh, and then the the bit in towards Glasgow is very much a 1990s motorway, and it's got the sort of it's got all the design elements that you expect from that and it's a little bit more conscious of its surroundings uh, and then you get the middle bit which is ever so much a 2000s motorway where it's slightly scared of its own shadow and it's not three lanes wide because we don't want to encourage car commuting so it's going to be a little bit narrower and the junctions are all just a little bit sort of stranger and more interesting because we have to be careful to go around this bit and around that bit so it's it's sort of it wears its history on its sleeve a bit um, and the the best thing about the m80 and i will never ever tire of this as long as i live is as you come out of glasgow off the m8 and you you peel off round to the left and then this amazing vista opens up of this railway bridge lying across the top of the motorway which is so enormously tall and so sort of ridiculously out of scale with its surroundings that I have never and I've been under it many times and I know how high it is above the road I know that lorries go underneath it I know that it works perfectly well as a motorway overpass and I have never yet approached it without just having the fear in my stomach that it's going to take the roof off the car because it just doesn't something about it is just the most amazing optical illusion I will never ever of sort of the thrill of going under it and being relieved that I still sort of have the top of my head intact. Um, so yeah, the, the M80 always has a special place for me for those reasons, uh, many others. It's 
funny listening to you say that, uh, Chris, but I think you're the first fan of the M80 <laughs> in the world, um, to be honest with you. And actually, it's quite justified for the reasons you, you're saying is it's like rings on a tree. You're right. It is all over over different eras and, and very piecemeal how it comes about. The, the, the other thing that I'm always very sad about is the loss of the temporary terminus of the 1990s section, um, just as it was approaching. Uh, is it Hags it ends at? Um, which which had that sort of the fantastic handbrake turn and the very strange unfinished junction on top. And of course, when they when they came to finish off the middle bit of the M80, all of that was tidied up and taken away. But it sort of had this gloriously strange handbrake turn onto a little sort of temporary length of motorway down to the A80. Yeah, top of the steps bypass. Uh, yeah, you remember that. And what's that junction called there? It's Crow something, is it? Crowwood. Crowwood. Yeah, yeah Miranda. The roundabout. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, just going back to the railway bridge. Uh, John, you might remember one of the guys who worked with British Rail um, mm -hmm. had got in touch with us a few months ago, uh, Jim Watson, his name is, uh, to say that had given us a bit of a tale about that. And the design was copied uh, almost identically from the, the example down in Manchester. Uh, I can't remember exactly where is it, M60? M60, M60, M60 I think. Oh, M uh, Denton, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it was all, it was almost a copy. And the British Rail Glasgow office apparently were looking for work at the time, and it was a good way of keeping people busy for a few months. <laughs> so it's way over-engineered. Yeah, it is. So there you go. Yeah, but uh, no, nobody nobody loses the roof of their car or their head. Uh, but I, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. That's interesting. Um, there's another road I'm quite fond of. Um, Chris, I'll set your opinions on it. It's not a motorway, but it's a Clydeside Expressway. Is this a road that you managed to get, get a look at when you were in Glasgow? Yes, it is. Yeah, I love the Clydeside Expressway. Um, it's it's the rarest of things, which is um, which is a non-motorway urban road that sort of has the feel of of powering along an urban motorway. You you take any you take any urban road in the UK that's that isn't a motorway. You know, if you go to Manchester and you take any of their urban roads that isn't the Mancunian Way or in Leeds if it isn't the inner ring road, it might still be fast and it might even still have flyovers and cuttings and sort of swooping corners and things, but it will still sort of be a bit stop start and a little bit sort of below what you expect. And the Clydeside Expressway absolutely delivers on its promise of an expressway. Uh, it starts at an incredible junction on the M8. It finishes at an incredible junction by the Clyde Tunnel, which is, by the way, one of the most fabulously bizarre shaped interchanges anywhere in the UK and yeah. just a masterpiece of designing something to fit its circumstances. Um, and along the way just takes you on this fabulous sort of rolling ride along the along the, the side of the river. No, that's fantastic. Beautiful road. Yeah, I mean, you, you say, you, you know, it, it does its job well going through. And I mean, it wasn't always like that. It did have a roundabout in the middle of it, but they, they did remove that. Uh, Glasgow City Council actually grade separated that. Mm. But now, I mean, it gives us wonderful access to like the the hydro, the SEC and all, all these these areas here. So it has been, it has been a boon for the area. But uh, another one more thing I want to talk about with Glasgow is, uh, and I am actually quoting something from your website here on your M74 article, is that the M74 was extended to meet the M8 in 2011. And I think your website, I'm paraphrasing slightly, says this is almost unheard of in this day and age because it is an urban motorway. What did you think of the fact they still built an urban motorway in the 2010s in Glasgow? 
I always get very frightened when people say they're going to quote things off my website back to me because I think, oh God, how long ago did I write that and how much do I still believe it? Um, uh, no, I, I, I do still completely believe that. Yeah, you, we don't build urban motorways anymore, do we? It just, it doesn't, it, I say we don't, you know, you're in Glasgow, you guys still do, it seems. But uh, the, the rest of the UK, it simply does not happen. Urban motorways are a thing that came and went. And I think in Glasgow as well, to an extent, uh, to a very large extent, urban road building is a thing that has been and gone and it's it's finished. But but Glasgow, as we said before, is in the position of being a very unique place. It has a very different structure to its road network compared to the rest of the UK for historical reasons because of the way the plan developed. Um, and it has the, 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 the sort of the almost inside out quality of having all the big roads, all the main roads penetrate right into the centre and there isn't uh, any particular orbital route around the outside to speak of. There's a there's a bit around, there's a yep. was it Glasgow Southern Orbital or something it's called, is it, uh, uh, down mm-hmm. down in the southern end? But it, the not, Glasgow Southern Orbital. But not really a, a sort of a ring road to speak of. And so you're in a position where when you have uh, particular urban traffic problems to solve, um, you can't do what another city might do, which is build something around the outsides, because around the outsides, there isn't the road connectivity there. So you have to work with the network you've got, and you maybe have to bring something back into the middle. But only Glasgow could do that in this day and age. I can't see it happening in any other city in the UK, because no other city in the UK has the urban motorway network for it to connect to, and no other city in the UK has the sort of the, the urban infrastructure that makes a project like that make sense. Um, so it was an amazing thing to see happen. I was in Glasgow at one point when it was being built and sort of standing underneath. I forget what street I was on, but there's a point where the viaduct goes over and the bridge span is so long that you, at the time, because there were hoardings at each side of the street, you couldn't see the bridge piers that were holding it up to either side. You could just see this enormous sort of span of green painted girders going over and sort of the size of them as they went over and the width of the road as it was spanning you. And the idea that this thing was being built in the 20th century in very nearly in the heart of a city it's you 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 didn't get to see it anywhere else it doesn't happen anywhere else um so yes yeah, it's, it's one more thing to add to the list of why glasgow is such a unique and fascinating place certainly for me when i can just come and be a roads tourist exactly well you're talking about there chris's uh, eglinton viaduct which is a massive structure and that's towards the northern end as it as it meets that's the one as it meets the kingston bridge uh of the highway plans uh things in glasgow not to test your knowledge ever so slightly don't be too nervous but is there any particular motorway that wasn't built that you would think to yourself actually it'd be really good if or handy if we had that one and i'm thinking something like maybe the mary hill motorway or the paisley hamilton or any of the other ones that you can think of um uh, mary hill is the one now you have to forgive me with terminology here that mary hill is the one striking north from the unbuilt junction on the m8 isn't it and that is yeah that's correct. that is the one that i always wanted to see that is the one where i've always looked at the plan and thought oh, I, I i i wish it had been built so not because i i see any particular transport reason for it to be there although i'm sure it would find its purpose but just because i looked at it on the plan sheet and i thought i want to drive that that looks fantastic it sort of it twists around the north of glasgow in the most amazing way um and uh and and also actually okay no there is a justification for it because it reaches up into a part of glasgow that the um no part of the highway plan ended up touching really because because the the construction process stopped where it did the none of the big routes went into the north of the city so actually it's a bit of a shame that the north never got the same treatment as the rest but yeah the the mary hill motorway was always the one that i looked at and thought no i want to go on that 
<laughs> us too. Funny you say us too. In that junction, the unbuilt junction on the M8, we do say you can see remnants of this. But just how close that junction would have been to other junctions, yeah. it would have been. It would have added something very spicy to an already <laughs> uh, interesting little mix that you've got going on there. Yeah, so. that junction. You you always tell us that was the that would have been the only semi-directional T. Yeah. In Glasgow? That's in right. Scotland? So this is another uh, Chris's website thing. So Chris has a, an article on junctions. And I believe on there that the, the junction design in some of these areas where they were full, fully directional junctions. And had that have been built, that would have been one of the only fully directional junctions in the UK. Okay. Yep. Interesting. So um, just, just I'm going to chuck this in there because Chris did mention something about junctions. Um, about how traditionally motorways in other areas just put a roundabout on top of the road and that's how it connects. Uh, I've spoken to John Cullen, who designed the system and the junctions with it, and I did ask him why there aren't many roundabouts and why no two junctions are the same. And it's just simply because every junction was very bes it was bespoke to the purpose it was it, it, it was kind of serving yeah. uh, and the areas that had to fit around in. He didn't like roundabouts anyway, uh, very much in the case that he wanted things completely free flow. Yeah. So... Yeah. There you go. And free flow was part of the commission. Yes, you know, to have things yeah. completely like that. So it, it was there. So the final thing, just talking specifically about Glasgow, is the gantries in Glasgow. <laughs> this, this, dreaded, this dreaded subject. Uh, I think you, you did have an article on your website about it. Chris, what do you think of these gantries? Because they are unique. They're, they're different. Uh, they're controversial. So um, lay the damage on us, please. I... I worry that they're controversial because I've complained about them so often and the, the things that I write about things like gantry signs in Glasgow tend to get read by a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I knew this question was coming and I was dreading it. I don't like them and I'm sorry about that. I just don't. Uh, we, we have ha I know that we have all had conversations on other means in the past on, on forums where we have all shared our opinions. So I'm not going to convince you and you're not going to convince me and that is fine. Um, but my complaint is this and I'll set it out because it will be new to some of your listeners. So, so across the UK, um, traffic signs are all, um, they, they are regulated in the same way. They appear in the same documents so that wherever you go across the whole of the UK, you see the same sign, you see the same symbol and you understand what it means. And that's all perfectly sensible. Nobody is complaining about the fact that a red triangle with two little figures and it means there might be children crossing because there's a school nearby and it's the same everywhere because that is how you get the best effect out of your uh, system of traffic signing. My complaint about Glasgow gantry signs has nothing to do with the fact that they are incredibly cleverly built and constructed, nothing to do with the fact that they're internally illuminated, which is a fantastic feature. I understand that they have um, very intelligent design features that appear nowhere else in the UK, which means that they can be serviced from the inside and the people servicing them are you know, not exposed to the elements and things. That's all absolutely fine. I just wish you'd put some arrows on them. I don't understand why. I, I don't understand why the convention that applies everywhere else, where if you're allocating people to a lane, be in this lane to go this way, be in that lane to go another way, you put some downward pointing arrows that say this lane for this way and this lane for that way. And in Glasgow, you just have to sort of look and kind of think, well, the road curves a bit, but I think by the time I reach it, I'm going to be underneath that bit of the sign. So I think that means I'm going to Kirk and Tillich. I'm not quite sure. And, and then when you have an exit coming up and you don't need to be in a lane, you're just going to peel off to the left and it's just a normal exit slip road. You would anywhere else in the country just have a little arrow pointing up and to the left diagonally that goes, yeah, this, this one's, this one's just peeling off. And in Glasgow, it's just, 
I don't know what it does. It just sort of sits over the hard shoulder a bit and it's sort of half over lane one and you're driving up and you're thinking, is that a lane drop? Am I coming off here? Am I staying on? Just put some arrows on them. That's all I'm asking you. Just put some arrows on them. I, I think we have to take that point. John, we do. We do. Uh, and we, we have waxed lyrical about the gantry. You, Stuart, you've worked with these things. They're your babies, you know. Yeah. But we, when we struggle about it, it's only fair we let Chris yeah. uh, a vo vo voice, voice uh, basically his perspective, but from an outside perspective. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, and as Chris says, though, mm -hmm. arrows are an important thing on signage. Yes. You know, they're uh -huh. a crucial part of signage. Mm -hmm. And, and as, as Chris probably knows from some of our old photos, that the gantries did have the electronic downward pointing arrows for the first 15 years that they were there. But at some point, someone's made a decision to turn that off. And by doing that, they've probably made the signs slightly more complicated to read than they need to be mm -hmm. for people in particular who are not from the conurbation, who don't know the road system as well as say, you and I. Yeah, just, just as a confirmation, just to maybe kind of tidy up Chris's points about this this ambiguity about the lane drops. Mm -hmm. Now, if it is a lane drop, it is where that part of the gantry for that destination is completely over the lane that is dropping. Yeah. But if it is not a lane drop and it's a diverge instead, it is half over the half shoulder and half over lane one. Yeah. So you, you, we, you, we know that. We know we that. We know that. <laughs> for someone who's driving at 50 miles an hour, yeah, and who maybe doesn't know signage as well as we do, yeah. I can accept that yeah. it could be confusing mm -hmm. to some um, about how that works and, and what you expect. And that probably contributes to the, the, the increased number of middle lane hoggers that we see in the Glasgow system that you don't necessarily see elsewhere, yeah. combined with the number of lane drops and gains that you get offside, near side. Because people are always worried if they're in the near side lane, yeah. they're going to disappear halfway off in the Easter house. Yeah. You know? Um, one thing I, I, I'll just say, this kind of holistic point on this, is, is any signage in an urban area is always difficult because of the amount of destinations. Now, the M77 gantries, and particularly suffer from this, is they have huge amounts of information on them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's trying to do that without making these things incredibly big and tall. You know, so they have to be concise. Well, one of the things, you know, the design principle behind the Glasgow gantry originally was architecturally, it was to fit within the surroundings as, as, you know, as well as it could without being stacked particularly high because it was passing, in some cases, historic buildings like the Mitchell Library and things like that, where they, they were just trying to reduce the visual impact of the of the signage as much as possible, the visual impact of the, the whole motorway, not just the signage. Mm -hmm. And, and it, kind of, it comes from that. That's why they're that kind of light grey colour yeah. and why they're all on, on a single level, you know. Um, but signage elsewhere in the country developed and, and, and evolved into other forms, Glasgow, it didn't, you know, mm -hmm. they, 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 and they continued it right through into the 1990s or even the 2000s with the M74. So they, they, they'd invested in it. They, they stuck with it. They had it, and it was difficult, I think, to, to move to something radically different by that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm, well, but that... you, you're very right that it's incredibly difficult to develop a way of signposting something as complex as a motorway in Glasgow in a way that makes sense to people. And you, you mentioned that I used to have an article on my website that, that talked about uh, gantry signs in Glasgow uh, this it, I think it was actually called urban motorway signs or something and it was it was more or less a sort of a long letter of complaint about these things across the UK it wasn't just Glasgow that came under fire there I've got rid of it since because I, I don't like to publish articles anymore that are just sort of whinging about things um, but the, the 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 number of places 
where I sort of gathered together photos from around the UK from urban motorways where the signage was terrible. It's almost universal. You know, the, there's, there's an urban motorway in Leeds, the Leeds in a ring road. The signage is appalling. Um, you know, the, the Mancunian Way in Manchester, they really struggle. The, uh, the M275 leading into Portsmouth is just, it's, it's, it's a shambles. And the, the reason is, I think, that it is incredibly difficult to fit in the requirement of there's loads of places where people might want to go. There's far more destinations to signpost than in a rural area. You've got far less space to do it in. You've got the difficulty of trying to fit it in in a way that doesn't mess up the landscape. Um, and Glasgow came up with its its answer for that. And that's, that's the system that you've got. And arguably, and I've never said this before, um, but I will say it now because, you know, this is... This is, uh, I feel like I'm within your domain here and I, I probably owe this to you. I think Glasgow's solution to that problem is far more elegant than the solution and, and far more considered actually. It's much more of a system and much more of an intelligent answer to it than the solution that's been come up with uh, almost anywhere else in the UK. You know, Leeds, Newcastle, whatever, they, they really, really struggle. And at least Glasgow has a system and an idea what it's doing, even if it's different to everywhere else and even if it's not quite to my taste, at least you've got a plan, you know? Um, and, and a way of doing it that takes the surroundings into consideration. And I have to say, Stuart, when um, when you mentioned the downward pointing arrows that used to be on the electronic signs, I didn't know that until, I don't know, a few years ago. I think it was from some of the archive pictures on your site where I learned that. And as, as soon as I saw it, I sort of clapped my hand to my forehead and went, oh God, now I understand. They were designed to have the arrows underneath them and someone took them away. Now I get it. Um, so it's it's not even a system that doesn't work. It's just a system that's not quite working as its designers intended. Yeah, and we've never quite got to the bottom of why they decided to turn it off. I mean, the Citrax system, the whole network of comms was connected in the early 80s. And uh, for some reason, at some point, someone's went, yeah, let's not waste electricity running these arrows 24 hours a day, let's turn them off. Yeah. I've never quite been able never to track got... down who made that decision and when it came in. And, and you know, it's something that remains on. You know that someone will get in touch and we'll have yeah, to mention so. it on the podcast. You yeah, know I that, do hope so. so. Yeah. Okay, well, that, that clears up the, the sticky top, uh, topic of the, of the gantries. And thanks so much for your insights with that, that Chris. Moving just uh, briefly to Scotland uh, as a kind of wider country, um, what, what other things, uh, what, what other kind of aspects of Scotland's road networks do you, do you like? Uh, is there any particular routes there or how do you feel it's maybe it's motorway network compared to England? Um, just op open forum here. What do you think? Um, I, I'll give you some complete non-motorway stuff. I, uh, I've spent a bit of time, not nearly as much time as I would like to have, but I've spent a bit of time around the Western Highlands, west of Ross and out towards Sky and things. And any opportunity to be in a car and just be driving along one of those wide open roads with the you know the mountains and the locks and everything else around me is is something i would be happy to get back to any day you like um i i need to find more time in my life to be traveling up there because there is nothing in this world like you know the a82 across uh rannick moor or uh the road to the isles going out to sky um i was uh <laughs> i was invited to a wedding that took place in god knows where was it It was on the way out to sky and they're not sort of off to the left somewhere um i forget the name of the the particular village but there was almost nothing there and it was in the middle of nowhere and being the arrogant road enthusiast that i am i thought oh i don't need a map i know where i'm going i know how to get places so i set off from uh, leeds i was leaving from in the morning and i went up you know up the a1 and across from scotch corner uh, and up the m6 a74 and m74 and i got as far as uh, the services would it be 
Lady Hamilton I got to on the way into Glasgow. Um, and, and I thought, this is a great place to stop for lunch. That's good. I'm in Scotland now, broken the back of this journey. And then, of course, had the lovely treat of driving through the middle of Glasgow. And then I hit the A82 and on my way out. And it was getting dark. And it was the middle of summer. So getting dark must have meant sort of eight or nine o'clock. Um, and I came out of maybe Tarbot or somewhere like there and hit one of the big green route confirmation signs uh, that said Fort William 49 or something. And I pulled up the car and just thought, oh, my God, because I knew that the place I was going to was at least an hour beyond Fort William. Uh, and it was just brought home to me in that moment that for someone who has grown up in the north of England, where we like to kid ourselves that we have wilderness and open countryside, and for someone who has then spent a lot of their adult life living even further south, I, you know, I've, I moved to London, I live just outside London now, um, the, 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 the vastness and the the incredible scale of Scotland and the sort of the, the amount of distance that you can cover on the most amazing roads is just almost beyond my understanding because, because, uh, because I, I sort of, I don't come from there. So yeah, I, that would be my pick, please. I, I will be in a car somewhere in the Western Highlands, just looking out at the scenery as I drive along. That's where I'd like to be, please. Well, that, that's a great point. I mean, it is, it's huge. I, I like you, Chris, I don't spend nearly enough time up on those roads, and I live in Scotland. I, I I've been to these, but like at Glencoe on the eighty two, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. One of the, this is the big challenge with Scotland and its transport infrastructures. You do have these very vast remote areas, oh, yeah. you know, and these are there is a lot of these cases. These are old Telford roads, yeah. you know, um, but it's actually something we we don't really talk about. I mean. The, the A9 is the most rural road we've ever had a podcast special yeah. about, yep. uh, to be honest with you. But uh, no, that's 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 quite we'll a... need to discuss the E82 and E87. We will, we and, will and get there. Oh, yeah. we, we've got yeah. plenty more to get through. So now we move on to England, which, um, you know, has, you know, a motorway network. It has yep. urban motorways in, in its own cities. And you, Chris, you have some good articles on uh, Liverpool, uh, Leeds. Uh, you've also got like uh, the ringways and stuff like that. So, can you tell us a little bit about? Uh, let's let's start with Leeds because you're from Leeds, uh, Chris. So let's talk about the the Leeds system. So a, a little bit on that, if that's okay. Ah, uh, my first urban motorway. Yes, uh, Leeds is blessed with the Leeds in a ring road, uh, which I think. Now, this is off the top of my head, and I haven't looked into this subject for for a good number of years now. But I believe the Leeds in a ring road was. Uh, I'm going to get corrected by email as soon as this goes out, was the first urban motorway in England. I think it was designated a motorway slightly ahead of Manchester. The Mancunian Way came a little bit later. I think the Mancunian Way maybe opened first, but it opened as an all-purpose road. So Leeds, I think, takes the title of the first urban motorway in the UK by certain, certain measures anyway. I'm from Leeds, so I would say that. Uh, but it is this sort of magnificent horseshoe-shaped urban motorway. It is tiny by Glasgow standards, two lanes each way, uh, 40 mile an hour speed limit, but the thing that Leeds gets right and the thing that I will forever love it for is that it is the best example I know of of integrating a motorway into its surroundings in such a way that you almost don't know it's there. So, so much of it is sunken into a trench. So much of it is placed into a tunnel where it passes beneath some buildings. So much of it is just sort of woven into the space that it's in. And, you know, you, you can stand beside bits of it and go, my God, there's an enormous motorway here. This is really noisy. But... Um, as urban motorways go, there are other places where you can stand next to it and not actually know it's there until you get right up to the railing and you're looking down on four lanes of traffic. And the, the test for me 
is you see urban motorways opening in other parts of the UK. You know, the Westway opened in London. There were enormous protests over it, and it changed the whole direction of road building in, the, in that city. Um, you know, the Mancunian Way in, in Manchester was very, very controversial. Uh, uh, the Central Motorway in Newcastle was very, very controversial and basically halted the, the plans for the city's motorway network. The Leeds Inner Ring Road has just never had that level of controversy. You know, it was built without people really being too bothered about it, which sometimes happened in the 60s because almost because people didn't quite know what they were getting at the time or, or what having an urban motorway meant. But since then it opened and it's just sort of become part of the city. No one's really bothered about it. And in an era where other cities are sort of tearing out bits of urban road infrastructure, you know, Birmingham is dismantling its ring roads because it, uh, they describe them as a concrete collar around the city because there's such a presence there. And in Leeds, it just goes unregarded it just sort of sits there and does its job and it's fine you know and the fact that it's there enables the center of the city to be um very uh, very largely pedestrianized you know uh, and it, it does its job in sort of the most incredibly unobtrusive way and has uh, right hand exits and tiny little loops slip roads and all the other wacky things that make an urban motorway so enjoyable yeah. that's it i mean leeds it has this uh well it had the slogan of the motorway city mm -hmm. it yeah. had that didn't it so um, no, you're, you're right. I it mean, did, we've yeah. visited Leeds and we, we've seen it. It's, it's a heck of a lot of it is, is in, well, yeah. all of it is in is in the kind of uh, depressed motorway yeah. cut and cover tunnel. Yeah, I, I was in Leeds last summer uh, in that brief window when we were able to travel around and do things. And uh, I was impressed to see that Leeds are actually uh, refurbishing some of the flyovers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Liverpool tearing them down, Birmingham taking them away. Uh, Leeds refurbishing their flyovers. They obviously work. You know, yeah. the work. I walked about Leeds city centre. It's largely free of traffic, um, you know, in a Glasgow type way. Um, yeah. it, it's it's quite impressive. It has a role. I would say it's it's important. And as Chris says, you're not really aware that it's there, it's there. unless you're right next to it. Now, Glasgow doesn't even have that. You know, mm -hmm. there is an awareness that the motorway system is there because it's either an elevated viaduct or it's channeling through a, you know, a very busy urban area. Yeah. Uh, so Weeds, I think Weeds got it right. Got it and, right. Yeah. Even though it's small, but it did get it right. And this is this goes to show that uh, although it's easier to construct elevated roads because you do not have to worry about the services and you can have the, the streets beneath, the depressed roads are the ones that are winning out at the moment, really, because as you say, you know, some cities are just removing these things. I mean, even, you know, we'll get on to London and talk about the West Way, but that, and, and the Mancunian Way is, is, is one of these highways in the sky kind of thing. You can see it from everywhere. The other thing I liked about Leeds was that there's a very obvious section to the south of the city that was constructed in the 1990s. Um, I liked the way that section tied in with the wider motorway network. So thinking of like the M, you know, out towards the M1 and sections like that. Now, Chris, you'll be able to fill, maybe fill some gaps in here. But there's a whole section around the south of the city centre that I believe was built in the early 90s and it has that very 90s feel about it. Yep. There's a, yeah, the uh, junction three of the M621 was... Uh, was done there were some changes to the motorway network so the m1 was sort of diverted around the east side of the city it used to go right into the center and end there which in some ways was not particularly useful for anyone trying to get any further north uh, so when that happened the 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 bit that used to be the m1 was reassigned to the m621 which already came into the city from the southwest so they were joined together at junction three to make one continuous motorway you couldn't travel between them very easily before then so yeah that the whole junction there was reconfigured in the 1990s and it's got all the things that you were you know sort of uh 
tubular steel painted in sort of bright primary colours and all the other things that you expect to see built in the 1990s there. Leeds also has uh, the Smeaton Viaduct, which is another part of what the, it's called the Inner Ring Road. It's not part of the motorway Inner Ring Road, but it is a part of the circuit uh, on another section of road um, out sort of uh, in Hunslet to the southeast of the city centre, which is, I think, about half a mile or so long. Um, dual two-lane elevated road that was built across the top of an industrial area, and that was only open sort of in the last 10 years. Um, so there's there's still sort of some some idea in Leeds that, you know, if you want to make uh, the, the centre of a city a pleasant place to be and, you know, you want to reallocate space to, um, uh, to, to other purposes, which is what all cities are trying to do now, you do also have to provide infrastructure to make sure that, that you can still travel around the place. Um, and uh, I think Leeds has been quite ambitious in that, even, even in the recent past. Well, that, that, that's good to see them do it because I have seen this, um, well, in my opinion, it's it quite frankly a ludicrous ar argument of what they call traffic evaporation, is if you just if you just get rid of all of these things, then, you know, none of the cars would be, often then that, in my view, it would just shift the problem elsewhere. I'm not sure what you feel about that or if you've even heard of that term. Yeah, I, I sort of have mixed feelings. It It can work. I feel like it's one of those things that has worked in some places, but sort of gets applied universally by some people when it's not a thing that you can apply universally, if you see what I mean. Um, so yeah, sure, there are situations where if you have a street that is uh, a shopping street or whatever, and it's full of traffic, and there's other ways for the traffic to go, yeah, sure, close the street and experience traffic evaporation as the traffic goes away. And potentially, that might work perfectly well. Uh, what, what I'm not sure you can do is apply that sort of to a whole citywide context and say, well, we're just going to close a load of streets and the traffic will evaporate, because for a city to function, people still have to be able to get places. Whether they get there by car or not is a different question. You know, you, you might be able to, uh, to encourage some modal shift and get people out of their cars and that's great or you might be able to get deliveries by other means but the idea the idea that you can just sort of make traffic go away i mean all you have to do is replace the word traffic with journeys because every every car in a traffic jam is someone making a journey can you experience journey evaporation in a city i'm not sure you can because everyone still has to get where they're going you wouldn't want that this is the thing i've often used to argue against is yes you might be talking about traffic evaporation but you'd also be looking at evaporation of businesses and opportunities and journey options you know, and these kind of things. This is a kind of an argument more about uh, transport policy. And, you know, and we will cover this this more in the, the kind of last segment that I have, have lined up. But I don't want to miss out the chance to talk about London. Now, London doesn't have many, uh, in fact, London doesn't have any classified urban motorways anymore. They all got declassified at some point. But tell us as briefly as you can, Chris, what, what went wrong in London? What plans did they have? And why didn't many of them get built? Well, this is, um, if I have a specialist subject in my scattergun approach to being a road enthusiast, this one will be it. I started with this at about the same time uh, as I found all the Glasgow plans in about 2005, but I went way, way deeper with London because it fascinates me endlessly. Um, the trouble with London's motorway plans is, number one, they were enormous. So you, you have a, a metropolis of about six million people at, at the time they were planning it, um, but a, a city that is, you know, tens of miles across um, and densely built up in a way that Glasgow was not in the 1960s and also uh, not clearable. You mentioned earlier, Stuart, with the comprehensive development areas, London didn't have anything like that because it wasn't comprehensively clearing. So there was no space for roads to go through. And in the midst of this, you have uh, politicians and planners who are absolutely terrified that their city is facing uh, what we would now call gridlock. In the 1960s, they, they 
used to use the word paralysis for it. They were imagining a city completely paralysed by traffic. Um, I, I think we now know cities... Like Edinburgh. Like... <laughs> I was about to say, possibly with the exception of Edinburgh, we now know that cities don't quite work like that. After a certain point, people just don't make a journey because it becomes too hard. And, you know, you, you don't reach a point where a city has actually completely seized up and business stops happening and all the rest of it. No one's ever quite reached that point. Uh, but in the 1960s, that was the fear. So they, they came up with this enormous plan, um, which I've always bracketed with the name ringways because the the three roads at its core were called ringway one ringway two ringway three and this was a system of concentric ring roads or concentric ring motorways so you imagine something like the m8 through the middle of glasgow but it's wider it has bigger junctions the junctions are further apart and your inner ring road uh, whether you know that the center of Glasgow that would have been encompassed by the inner ring road had it been completed is something like two or three square miles perhaps the uh, the center of London within ringway one the innermost ring road would have contained something like 60 square miles of the city so these are enormous road projects uh, all linked by uh, someone I know described it as creating a dartboard of motorways across London so all linked by radial motorways going out connecting all these ring roads and heading out into the countryside um, and almost none of it was ever built um, because it turns out it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And it's not just hard to find somewhere to put these motorways, but it's very hard to persuade the population of London that they're a good idea. Um, the, uh, the joy of your research and the thing that I'm permanently envious of when I look at your website is that you can refer back to these two complete documents that show you the intention for the whole of Glasgow. So in the 1960s, you had uh, teams of, of planners and architects and so on who came up with the Glasgow Highway Plan and the Greater Glasgow Transportation Plan. And they said, there you go. There's a picture of our city as we'd like it to be. Um, and the reason that my research has been ongoing since about 2005 is that there was no single plan for London. So the Ministry of Transport and the GLC knew sort of the picture of what they wanted to create but there was no master plan. So you can't consult a single document and just say, oh yeah, there it is. There's the motorway network they wanted to build. You have to tease it out project by project. And you know, in places where they're dealing with the North Circular, you have to tease it out junction by junction because every individual junction was a separate scheme being pursued by the ministry with its own team of designers, its own consulting engineers. Um, so it's, it's the most enormous thing. And it is, um, I describe it on my website as the biggest thing never to happen to London. Um, because almost all of it never happened uh, and it, it would have produced a completely different city if it had but I think most people who who live their lives and work in London have no idea that it could ever have been different to how it is today which which I find bizarre because you know it's all choices isn't it we we end up with the city that we chose we, we you mean I have driven in London and Stuart you have as well and it is a it is a difficult and challenging place to drive the mentality and driver behavior is quite different there as well but the the sheer volume of traffic you know, um, you think that someone, mm. uh, um, someone living in London would think, you know, why hasn't somebody done something about this? <laughs> why isn't there a proper South Circular, you know, or something like that, you know? So, you know, attitude. So if ring, if somebody was to come up with, with ambitious plans that were similar to ringways now, how do you think that would go down in London? Uh, very badly, I think. Uh, I think it would be a vote loser and uh, it would 
uh, it would fall by the wayside very, very rapidly. Um, you often hear people complaining about the traffic and you very often hear people complaining about the traffic in London. Um, and, you know, you hear people um, talking about how wouldn't it be better if, yeah, the South Circular is, believe me, I lived in South London for about, you know, 10, 12 years. It is a nightmare. You know, if you want to go somewhere, get in your car, but don't take the South Circular. doesn't matter where you're going, that won't take you there. Um, it's uh, Someone once described it to me as nothing more than a collection of signposts. Um, you know, people complain about the traffic all the time, but, but if you you ever try to propose to do anything about it um, you very quickly find the level of opposition that is there my theory on that is that um, the ringways poisoned it um, the problem the 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 nub of the problem is that in the 1960s and 70s there was this sort of institutional panic about where london was headed so we you know we we have to do something to fix the traffic problem so they came up with this huge plan for all sorts of roads and motorways like i say there was no single document where you could look at it and go there's the master plan but there was very clearly and very publicly an intention to build lots and lots of roads and you know multiple concentric ring roads and all the rest all of which went to um, a public inquiry as part of this thing called the Greater London Development Plan, which was sort of setting out a blueprint for the city for the next X number of years. Um, uh, and this was, at the time, the biggest public inquiry the country had ever known, and two-thirds of the objections at this year-long inquiry were about the motorways. Um, and unfortunately, um, what's, what it seems to me happened there was um, the authorities came to Londoners and said, God, the traffic's awful, isn't it? Uh, well, here's your choice. You can either have an enormous network of urban motorways. They're all going to be eight lanes wide. They're all going to be hammering through residential districts in places like Islington and Hackney and uh, Balham and other sort of desirable places to live. Um, we're going to be knocking down houses and parks. We're going to be displacing 36,000 people. But my God, isn't the traffic bad? We better do this. The only other plan we've got for you is not to do it. And the public went, well, let's not do it. That sounds horrendous. Um, and the fact that it was such a black and white choice meant that the opposition to it was absolutely um, militant. People hated this thing. And it sort of created this atmosphere in London where even though people in London don't remember these motorway plans by and large, they don't know that there were ever plans for motorways. I get emails from people saying things like, you know, I'm a, I'm a cycling campaigner, I'm a green transport campaigner. Uh, someone sent me an email saying um, I spoke to a guy who's been involved in transport campaigning in Streatham for the last 40 or 50 years uh, and he told me that once upon a time the Greater London Council wanted to build a motorway across uh, Tootingbeck Common which is this sort of big green you know grassy park full of beautiful ancient trees and things. Um, and he, he, he said in his email to me, he said, I didn't believe this guy. I thought he was exaggerating. I thought, oh, yeah, you know, campaigners always talk about they want to build a motorway through here. They can't possibly have wanted to do that. And he said, I've just been to your website and seen the plans. They wanted to build two motorways through. And I was like, yeah, the M23 and the Ballam Loop were going to go through with a big three-way three free-flowing interchange that would have taken out basically the whole park. Um, so London has forgotten that these plans ever existed. But what it hasn't forgotten is the fact that it hates the idea of roads being built. So when plans come back again in the 1980s, the GLC was abolished by Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative government came steaming in. We're going to do something great for the motorist and developed all these plans. They wanted to build a better South Circular. 
Um, and in the face of what was about to be a complete and total wipeout in the local elections that April, they dropped all the plans in order to win back some votes because London wasn't having it. They were about to lose local elections in London on the basis that they wanted to build some roads and, and help out solving the traffic problem. Um, and, and this stuff just doesn't go away. In the 90s, there were plans on the M11 uh, Woodford Link Road, which is really quite a small bit of urban motorway building compared to the stuff that was in the 60s. But, you know, that was people camping out in trees and declaring... Um, you know, declaring an independent state and all this to try and stop the bulldozers coming through. So London hasn't forgotten all this stuff. So no, I, I can't see anyone coming along and making a serious proposal because I don't think any politician of any colour would dare propose it now. There's just no votes in it. Yeah. Okay, well, that, that's, that's great. Everything, you, you know, you've, you've said that, Chris, but I'm kind of at a point now where I say, you know, that if they face with this kind of extreme problem of paralysis of traffic and then faced with the extreme solution... They didn't want that either. Then I don't think the people in London have any right to moan about it. But they do have a very um, good public transport network in London. Yeah. That is, to me, a third way with these, these yeah. things is that you actually cannot solve transport problems with roads alone. No. You can't solve transport problems with cycling alone. You can't solve them with buses alone. It has to actually be all of these things coming together, you know. And um, That's why the Greater Glasgow Transportation Plan and study was so... Uh, was so well regarded because it looked at rail, it yeah. looked at bus, and it looked at it was roads. balanced. You need a balanced transportation yeah. system. But I, I do find it amusing that, uh, that you know this transport campaigner uh, got in touch with you and said, "I I didn't believe that people wanted to put the motor here." But the thing is, we we get some of some of this, but in a different form. Is we always have to come back and go. You need to put yourself in the thinking of the time. Is the, the yeah. these things is motoring and that was very up and coming it was seen yeah. as car was king you want a car you go and do this and, and this is a point this is where glasgow would stand out compared to some of the other cities london in particular and john cullen always made this point mm -hmm. in glasgow the plans were always sensible they were always they always had to be feasible so yeah. 80 percent of the m8 for example was built on either empty or undeveloped or yeah. land that was in the process. It was something really Charing Cross, yeah. Cross, which was... Yeah. So the, in Glasgow, they knew that they couldn't necessarily plough roads just through anywhere. And if you look at the ones that, that were the most controversial, say like the east flank and then the ring road. And the south link. Yeah, and parts of the Maryhill motorway that were going to go through urban areas that weren't scheduled for clearings, the protests were there. Yeah. And you look at parts at M8, which you look at now and you think, you would think that would be controversial, but actually at the time, there were no residents there because they were being moved out to the satellite. Well, they built on top of a canal. Yeah. You know? yeah. London just didn't quite have these things. Absolutely. Chris said it, yeah. you know, the, the space wasn't there. Yes. And you do need a certain set of circumstances. Yeah, uh, yeah to allow it. And Glasgow had that. And, and as I say, the engineering aspects of it, you know, they were there. They, 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 there was no pie in the sky. Mm -hmm. Everything that was proposed in Glasgow was very, it was buildable, mm -hmm. you know, without having to go to extreme lengths to make it fit within the surroundings or, you know, mm -hmm. that, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. I think we've only got time for maybe just one last point uh, on this. And I have it here about the kind of the future of urban motorways, but I'm going to change it slightly to the future of kind of driving in town uh, about, about these things as, as from the 1990s onwards. In fact, even from earlier of that, you know, traffic having, you know, everyone driving in town, it just really isn't sustainable to have everyone doing this. But it does seem now really it's, it's getting more fierce in the, the approach of getting people out of their cars. They really do not want you driving into the city centre now in most cities, you know, and even as you say, uh, Birmingham are, are actively removing a lot of their, their um, high capacity infrastructure for roads. 
So I, I, I have a, a problem in some ways with this is, is I do like having the choice of, of being able to travel by car to places. I do see it as a mode of transport that is, is great because it's convenient. It's door to door. It's, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's your own environment. You can go and, and, and get in the car and go somewhere and it takes, it takes you straight there. But a lot of people kind of don't see it that way. So, Chris, what are your thoughts on this? What do you, how do you feel cars fitting in with cities in the future and how other modes of transport should be fitting in? It's really tricky. Um, you, you made a really good point a minute ago about how you have to put yourself in the head of the people who are planning sort of the urban motorway schemes of the 60s to understand why they came up with what they did. And back then, yes, the car was king. And there was this idea that, you know, if if people want to drive a car somewhere, well, we we better make some space for them because that's their, their right to choose how they're going to get somewhere. And we don't quite think like that now um, because I think there's maybe more of an understanding that you, you have to balance sort of the needs of... Um, uh, the, the wider community as well as the need of the particular person hopping in their car and going somewhere and if you get into a car and you drive into a city you are taking up quite a lot of space relatively speaking uh, to, to, to get where you're going you are demanding quite a lot of space in the street as you're passing through the facilities that have to be built for you are wide compared to a pavement or a cycle track or you know an, an underground railway or whatever else um, and those things have to be weighed against the community as a whole but I have I have a real, um, like you are, I have a real difficulty with it because my head is in two places on it. And on the one hand, I totally understand um, the the modern thinking in terms of transport planning, which is that you can't build a sort of a viable, vibrant city of the kind where people want to live around cars. You can't create infrastructure for people to drive everywhere they want to go and still have a city that people want to live in and, and that is workable. People want um, places that are walkable when they're in a city. They want nice, cosy little streets. They want interesting spaces. And that's not compatible with a car. Cars require lots of lanes and sort of smooth corners to turn around and things like that, which means that the shape of your city is very different and the allocation of space is very different yeah. and the distances become very different. Um, you know, Los Angeles went all out for the car. And in some ways, it's quite a desirable place to live, mainly because it's very sunny there. But in a lot of other ways, it's not a desirable city to be in at all because it's a, it's a nice nightmare of a place to plan for it's a nightmare of a place if you want to try and get anywhere without a car it's uh, you know it's 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 right down one end of the scale and it shows you all the disadvantages that you can find if you go too far in that direction um so i completely understand why modern transport planning says no no we we need to encourage people if they can use another form of transport to take another form of transport and like you said london went completely down the public transport route and is much more down the other end of it it's quite hard to drive a car anywhere in london it's much easier to take public transport um i say that as someone who because i've had to carry on working all the way through the last year i've been driving into london for work and i can't wait to get back on the train when i'm able to do so because it's just so tiring um and and you can tell as you drive around it's a city that just doesn't want you there and i'm you know you drive around and i've watched all the cycle lanes going in um over the summer and and you know now being made permanent and pavements being widened and turning lanes being taken out as they uh, you know the authorities take the opportunity to just trim down the amount of road space a little bit and start reallocating space for other modes of transport and i completely get why they're doing that because it is the sensible thing to do but the other side of my brain is going yeah but i like driving my car um and it's a nice way to get somewhere um 
uh, and not just as a road enthusiast, although, you know, very often driving to work, I go down the West Way and I very much enjoy driving down one of the few urban motorways that was ever built in London and going, oh, look at me, I'm pretend I'm in the 60s. This is great. Um, uh, but but also because it's just it is just the most enticingly um, pleasant and convenient way to get somewhere. But I I try to remind myself and I try to be. Uh, this is going to make me sound all sort of smug and altruistic and attempting to draw a halo above my head. But I try and remind myself that as a driver, because I'm sitting in my nice cosy metal box and I'm protected from the elements and I don't have to exert any energy to move and, and all the rest of it, I am really the most privileged person on the road. I can't really expect the city to be built around me. Um, the difficulty is when you've already halfway built your city around people in cars, they get quite cross when you start taking it away from them. And I, I get why that is, because it feels like... Like it feels like the world is being turned against you a little bit. Um, and when I have encountered those places where suddenly there's a cycle lane and I can't turn left anymore because there's one bloke on a bicycle now wanting to go straight on and the road has been reconfigured to allow him to go straight on, but I just want to turn left. Um, I, I, I feel some of that frustration myself. Um, but no, I, I, I don't see... What I don't see is the tide turning the other way. You know, sometimes things in um, in politics uh, and transport policy sort of goes one way and then the other, and it sort of washes backwards and forwards like the tide. I don't see this one going that way. I don't think that we are going to see car transport coming back. You know, people talk about electric cars and autonomous vehicles and things. I, I can't see them tipping the balance the other way. I think this is the way that cities are going, and I can't really find it in my heart to be too cross about it. Like I say, except when I'm sitting in my car on the way into London and I'd quite like to just, you know, drive to work and be in the warm and out of the rain. That's just it. I do wonder how many of these summer lockdown cyclists that we have will do it over the winter, but well, that's that's yeah, especially in the climate we have up here, Scotland. Yeah, <laughs> this is just. Do you know what? What a fantastic viewpoint, though, Chris. Uh, it really is all we have time for, and yeah. that that whole discussion about transport policy, particularly within cities, is something really of its own podcast. You know, yeah. its own series, even. Yeah. But no, interesting viewpoint. I'd love to come back with loads, but. Um, everyone listening to this is probably at work by now so we, we we better wrap it up there so chris it's been absolutely fantastic having you yeah so thank you very very much it's been an absolute joy to be here thanks ever so much yeah hopefully come back at some point and, and talk to us again on some other subjects okay well we'll do the usuals um on here so hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast do not forget to leave us a rating on apple Apple, Apple Music, is it now? Apple Podcasts these Apple days. Apple Podcasts yep. these days. Apple keep changing all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. On Spotify and also on Podbean as well. And you can get the daily fix of the Glasgow Motorway Archive's best bits on social media. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You'll see lots of new photos on there. Uh, we should say we've been scanning uh, lots of new materials. Yes, Stuart has been extra industrious lately, scanning yep. everything in. It's it's fantastic. So, uh, we've got about 2,000 new slides from the 1990s that were scanned in the last few weeks, so hopefully we'll be making those available to you all soon. Uh, we should take the opportunity to thank HBS Scotland Limited, uh, one of our most recent supporters. Uh, we, we thank Nigel and the guys there for their generous donation to the, the Glasgow Motorway Archive uh, in February. That's allowed us to invest in some much needed IT equipment that will help John and some of the other guys in the team uh, help me with some of the, the sort of digitization work that we're doing for, going forward. So thank you very much for that, Nigel. And the guys, we really, really appreciate your support. Yeah, we do. Thank you. And of course, all our podcasts are on Podbean and everywhere else you'll find them on the internet. So please look us up uh, and we will be back with you next month. Yeah. So thanks for listening. See you then. Bye-bye.